Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. Next year, I will have been doing this for 20 years. And the most common thing that I hear is I feel stuck. And the reason why people feel stuck is because they have what I would call their current belief. But I have another belief that keeps sneaking up in my subconscious that is in, in opposition to what I believe as a 52-year-old. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, my guest is Megan O'Neill. And Megan O'Neill is a core belief engineering therapist. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for having me. Morning, morning. Uh, I am so excited, uh, but first I have to ask, what is a core belief engineering therapist? I've had that for 20 years, that question, because the name is kind of wacky, but it, it actually, it, it reflects actually what I do is I help to re-engineer faulty or old belief systems. So just, just quickly, I, I'll give you my explanation. So yeah. When we talk about mindset, we're talking about a system of belief. So if I say I have money mindset or I have relation mindset, I'm talking about a system of beliefs. And my job is, it's on, I call myself sort of the belief surgeon. I go into like the deeper parts of people's subconscious and I help them to re-engineer their, their system of beliefs. So I don't know if that's a great explanation, but that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I like the engineering shift on it. That's good. Um, uh, one of the things I wanted to tell, I was reading some of your stuff on your website and you talk about mind blocks versus beliefs. Is there a difference on those? No, no. Everything is about everything. If you, if you listen to people speak all the time, and this is, this is great for everybody listening that when, if, if you're going to work or you're talking to your honey bunny, you'll hear their beliefs coming at you all the time, but they'll use different words. So they'll say, well, this is what my value is or this is what our traditions are. And so you're constantly listening to people tell you what their beliefs are. And the blocks that I'm talking about on my website are things generally that people struggle with that are caused by their beliefs. So the block is the symptom of the faulty belief. Well, so how do we know when a belief is faulty, Megan? Like, what does that mean? Well, you know, traditionally, everybody has used one phrase continuously over the years. So I've been doing this for this next year. I will have been doing this for 20 years. And the most common thing that I hear is I feel stuck. And the reason why people feel stuck is because they have what I would call their current belief. This mm -hmm. is what the, reflects their age. So I'm 52. So I, the, my current belief is this. But I have another belief that keeps sneaking up in my subconscious that is in, in opposition to what I believe as a 52-year-old. So if those two beliefs are constantly battling, then you will have a feeling of being stuck. Can you, give, can you be more concrete there for a second, Megan, and just like 
attach oh. some real things to those beliefs. Like okay. Names and values. So, sorry, sorry, my light labels. So I'll give you an example. Because we're talking about, I'm talking to a money person. We constantly have a battle in our beliefs around money. So we, I would have grown up in my family where you cannot have debt. So say, for example, in my, uh, in my, um, my growing up here is my mother, which is actually true. My mother would always talk about debt being like any type of debt. So this is someone who wasn't well-educated around money and she just saw the word debt and she believed that that was, there was no, there was no way there was no, maybe your mortgage would be acceptable, but that would be it. And so if I'm a business person and I want to take on some debt because of my business, I'm hearing my mother's voice, which is like, you know, in my subconscious, that's wrong. You're going to be in danger. That's not a good decision. But then I'm talking to my financial advisor who's saying, you know, that's all right. That's permissible. Or my, my, my business advisor who's telling me that's permissible. And then I feel stuck. Like I can't make a decision. I feel like I'm procrastinating. And my business person is saying, well, why are you procrastinating? And there's this word, there's this, um, this belief that's ruminating that is stopping me from taking action. Does that make sense? Yes. So do you think that sometimes this manifests a lot as pro uh, procrastination or does it manifest in other ways? So I feel stuck. What are the things that I'm doing or not doing as a result that I may not even be aware of that stuckness? Well, uh, because we're talking about uh, you and I have talked a lot about uh, managing money. So when I talk to girlfriends of mine, for example, who have struggled in the area of, of money, so they are really, really struggling with money. They are educated in many ways about money. They understand logically what they need to do. So you need to not spend uh, that amount of money on your, your child's hockey uh you know, their, their, their hockey life, like, you know, they're not going to be in the NHL. It's 0.03 people who make it to the NHL, but how many people spend all the money on hockey? So in hopes that their child will get there. So that's not really logical. We all know the kids probably not going to make it, but they spend X amount of dollars. Cause I know this firsthand I'm in Ottawa, you know how it is. Yeah. And yet they know intellectually, they don't have the money, but yet there's a belief that's stronger that says to them, my kid needs to have this. I need to keep up with the Joneses. There's all these beliefs and they come from all types of places. So even though a person logically knows what they need to do, there's an emotional a belief that's keeping them hostage and keeping them stuck doing the same repetitive thing year after year after year with the hockey. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's interesting. There's so many levels. When I talk to, to clients about their kids' activities in particular, like I've had people who insist on going into debt to maintain their kids activities. Right. And I like, you know, because they want to do everything for their kids. And I'm, I'm assuming there's something deep in there as well about something that happened to them from their parents that says they have to do that. Right. Most of our big, big, big beliefs. So most of our beliefs that I would have seen when I worked in the area of relationships yeah. or in the area of money, or if you look at, you know, that I work with uh, uh, women entrepreneurs most of the time. Um, most of those beliefs that are keeping them hostage, that are um, creating the patterns that I see again and again, because once again, that's an, a symptom that people will come to work with me when they understand that there is a pattern that is happening again and again in their life. Mm. And so those big beliefs are definitely formed in childhood. Our big beliefs, like if you think about something around 
um, the messaging I got from my mom around risk and debt being risky. My grandparents were the, uh, they experienced the Great Depression. That was a huge, huge, huge factor in my growing up years was the dinner table on Sunday was about what they went through in the depression. Just like with my husband, Kevin, his Mm. grandparents went through the second world war. And um, those stories have an energy and they, you know, think about a child. How does a child determine what is bad and good? They can feel the energy and look at mom's expression. Look at dad's expression. Nana looks like she's got pain when she says it, they can't, they don't have the cognition to understand that these are in the past as well. So what we do is we form these big beliefs, but I just want to tell anybody who's a parent here, don't freak out because I know that every time parents are like, Oh, uh, it's flashing is flashing in your head. You're like, Oh my God, what did I say to my kids? Yes. You do say good things to your kids. I have done it. It actually helps me to listen to myself when I'm talking to my children, because what I do is I pick up some of the negative beliefs that I have naturally passed on to my kids and I'm correcting them. So this is an opportunity. I always think um, we weren't necessarily taught about money as children in the, in the, this is what this is, but we were taught because you were taught about debt, whether you knew it or not. Right. 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 Well, allowance even or work. Just think about, and I'm doing this to my kids so I can speak to this, but you know, we were, we grew up in a certain way and you know that it was um, some, a lot of it was negative. There was no money talk for either my husband or myself. It was actually quite secretive in his family. Mm. Like his dad would have the spreadsheet out and then he hide it when he came in. And part of the reason why I hid it was because he actually didn't want his son to know how much money he had because he didn't want him to become a spoiled Canadian. So there's a, like, once again, there's immigrant beliefs, if you want to, you know, in, yeah. because we're Canadians, we every Tom, Dick and Harry that we grew up with parent might've come from another country and has a different experience as opposed to someone who's been here for generations. And so all of those beliefs and all the experiences that people have, I mean, every time that you have an experience, you create a belief. It doesn't mean the belief is correct. It just means that you've created a belief. And of course, we couldn't not talk about gender beliefs, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So So, because you used you you did you you now deal primarily with women entrepreneurs, but in the past you have dealt with both genders and and do you see do you see it manifest differently? Like even the same belief, how it manifests? Oh yes, yes. And and I yeah, my first clients were men. It's really interesting way back when I started because my just my title, as you guys can 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 ascertain, is different, right? So why would someone come to work with me with a title like that? Well, part of the reason why uh, my or my my oldest clients were men were was because they understood the connection. They were businessmen and they understood the connection between what they believe, that word resonated with them and what their, what their actions were or what their feelings were. So a lot of it was around networking, actually. Some of my um, first clients were coming to work with me on networking, on what they believed about, you know, networking. And that's complicated within itself. Yeah. But, they, but the difference of how it manifests in, in my mind is, um, I don't think that women, I, this is obviously general, but I don't think that women have the same confidence coming into business, which makes sense because, of course, If you look at someone my age, I didn't see many role models who were independent or even worked in corporations on a higher level. Mm -hmm. 
So there wasn't those kind of uh, role models. They might've been on TV or in movies, but they weren't great role models on TV and in movies. Like think about the devil, not that I was young, but the devil wears Prada or any of the sort of first uh, uh, business role models. And how it manifests also is that I'm just thinking about one of my clients. Oh, I him not having made by this point, he hadn't made X amount of millions of dollars. And so he had created a belief when he was young that he had to have X amount at 48 or whatever millions of dollars in the bank. And he hadn't, and and it was like this random number that he created like 1988 or something. And he hadn't reached that goal. Whereas women wouldn't have, they wouldn't have even considered that they would have had that at 18. That just wouldn't have been on the radar. Most women. So even, so the end result of course is, is that the amount is going to be, if you don't have that belief and that's not your motivation and it's neither here nor there, but obviously we need money. I mean, (laughs) we're going to work for money. He has, this was his main focus for years. So yes, that's what I think of right away. Okay. So yeah, so they have different, we have different things. So as entrepreneurs, do you see for business owners, do you see any common blocks that keeps them from, um, achieving all their potential? Well, I think uh, procrastination is one of the main, I would say procrastination for sure yeah. is one of the main um, symptoms that I see. For women, it's imposter syndrome, like 150%, and it's huge. Um, and I know that goes across the board that whatever profession a woman is in, she has imposter syndrome, but I think it almost is a step up with business women. It's almost like up there. And even women who are in the top, no matter where you look, I mean, if, if, if you have a Michelle Obama having imposter syndrome, you're like, oh my God, like who, like where are we, who doesn't, right? But so yes, can I we define imposter syndrome. Okay. So imposter syndrome is when you feel that you do not have enough knowledge or experience to be in the position that you are currently in, or you don't feel you can achieve it. So it, it's often described as feeling fraudulent. Like I feel like a fraud. So what it ends up, the end up, the end up the result of that is that um, if you feel imposter syndrome, if you don't feel like you have the qualifications, even though you have three degrees, or if you've been in the industry for 30 years and you still don't think that you have enough, and they literally have done studies after studies on this, where women, for example, will be within, say, an institution, a company, like a blue chip company. She will have the perfect uh, job that will be put right in front of her for her to apply. She will not apply for it, even though it was tailor made for her, because she says to herself, I just don't have enough, don't have enough education. I don't think that I have enough experience. And then a male will see the same job description and he'll go, you know what? His belief system will be, I'm going to apply for that job because I can learn that on my feet. I can figure it out. And so they're sort of the negative and you know positive for, for the men who were when they did the study. Um, but often what ends up happening in sort of the, the symptoms of imposter syndrome, especially for business women, is that I think in my experience is that also leadership becomes a challenge for them. So managing their team or having to grow their team, they uh, struggle with beliefs about themselves that I don't think that men experience as much. Okay. So when you say leadership with the team, what does, how's that showing up for a woman entrepreneur? Well, it's, 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 for example, um, in job review, 
in terms of job review and, and helping someone to understand what their job is and, and um, giving feedback and how I, I feel really bad about that. Like I'm, I'm feeling like I might be seen as a bad person and I just don't, you know, or do, am I really competent enough to take that um, business to uh, multiples, whatever that is, right? Do I have what it takes? And really, I'm in this position, I've made this much money, but they're going to find out any day that I'm, I'm a fraud and that I don't really have what it takes. In leadership, it's exactly that. It's about, um, I'm afraid to hire more people. I'm afraid to hire uh, more employees or even, you know, depending on where a person is at, to hire them, period. So it's easier to have contract people because you can just get rid of them more easily than if you take on the responsibility of a full-time employee. So they struggle with that. Um, I see with all uh, entrepreneurs, but in particular women, is um, appropriately pricing offers and their their offerings and things of that nature. Um, is that an, is that impacted by imposter f- syndrome? And what else might be playing into that? Definitely imposter syndrome. So who am I to charge more than this? The fear of, um, I think it's real. this has been something I've seen again and again, where people are obviously going to respond to your offer in different ways based on their money beliefs. Mm-hmm. So I might think that's a great deal. And then you, Wendy, might think, geez, that's like super high. I'm not going to pay that. So we both have different lenses in which we see the world. Mm-hmm. Your beliefs are your lenses. So I might think, oh, wow, gee, that's great. And the other person might think that's too expensive and I'm never going to go to her. And so what ends up happening is, is that where I see the offer being an issue is that lots of time women look for external approval, meaning that Mm. they crowdsource. That's kind of the term. I don't know if you've heard that where they go around to. Okay, so crowdsource means and you see this sometimes on Facebook or in groups um, or an email where the person will send. Do you think this is reasonable to the people out in the, you know, the atmosphere or the worst, they go to friends and family, which is the kiss of death. Okay. Don't ever go to friends and family because you know, your family is most time your family is just does not understand. Or even, I even joke about this. I call people who work in um, the traditional world, like my husband who works for the government as the normal people. And then the people who are entrepreneurial are not normal people because who would do this, right? Because they... (laughs) They're all, we're all crazy. <laughs> They're all crazy. And they can't. And I mean, the part of the reason why you always hear people become their own business people, you know, whatever, even if they, they go out consulting, whatever they're doing is because they just hate, often hate systems. I, that's the reason why I could never work in a traditional because I felt it was too short, too, too slow. Don't they know how to do this better? Like they're usually kind of maverick type of personalities. Yeah. Normal people. So if you're looking to normal people, regular people who don't understand how it works to define your, and they've never had any experience. I love this where people go, well, you know, my husband or my wife or my dad is saying that's too expensive. And you're like, do they know anything about like your business? No, but we're constantly giving our authority away. And women tend to crowdsource because they don't want to own it. I want to go a little bit further into giving authority away. Um, Tell me more about that. Where do you see it the most happening? Um, I see, well, oh my goodness. Are you kidding me, Wendy? This is like a there's this is like an epidemic. I actually like originally just throwing named, you, I'm just throwing you lobs. Okay? Oh my you, goodness. You 
<laughs> there's so many areas. I mean, where do we start? Where do we start? I mean, there's the for sure about money. I mean, how many uh, I don't know if this is your experience, but I've read a lot about um you know, women who are the, say, for example, the company or the women who have built the business and going in with their spouse and they immediately kind of acquiesce to the spouse taking the lead on the, on, on talking about money. I, I mean, I just saw a commercial, an American commercial for getting a mortgage and the woman turns to the man, the commercial, and she goes, can we afford this? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, so we have so much conditioning yeah. Uh, and I certainly, I can speak from my, my own, I had came from a traditional family in the sense that even though my mother worked and always worked pretty well, um, they, she believed that men knew better literally till her last house. And she was going to negotiate her mortgage. I'm like, they like bought three houses. Now, do you want me to go with you? She was like, no, I'm going to go with your brother-in-law. I was like, okay. <laughs> You know, so we're constantly giving away our authority because we were conditioned to believe that people knew better than us, that we, that once again, the imposter syndrome, we don't have what it takes to figure it out. We don't believe in ourselves enough to give ourselves the authority to call ourselves an expert. So, so um, just to give you an example in marketing, and I was talking to our marketing friend yesterday about there's two uh, in the marketing world, in order for you to be successful, you have to do two things. You have to make yourself relatable. So it's called like the, you know, the relatable post, if you're posting on Facebook or talking to a group, and then there's the authority post. So you have to somehow in your posting or you're talking, identify yourself as an authority, an expert in your field. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what women struggle with? This is what we were talking about yesterday is that They'll get up there and they'll, they're great at the relatability stories. Oh, I'm, you know what? I went through you and I say that to myself. I went through what you went through. I understand what you're feeling. This is what a, you know, loser I was at this time. And everybody, you hear these stories from all these women entrepreneurs. And if you go to the book section on Audible, because I did this last week where I had a credit and you look at all the books that the women have written who are super, super successful, multiple um, eight, eight figure ladies you will constantly see them talking about some sort of mindset block that they had and mm-hmm. something confidence code and all this sort of thing. You go to the, the mail and their business, totally different titles. So you just have to go to your, your local bookstore and look at the business women's books to see the difference in mindset between the two genders. Right. Right. So we're constantly giving away our authority. And you can tell by looking at those um, that it doesn't matter. And they'll still talk about it with women. And I'm not saying that men don't experience this, but I think that men were, and I think we see this everywhere we look around. I saw the debate last night. Anybody what? Well, I saw it five minutes because it's so boring, the debate, the leaders debate here in Canada. And you saw one woman up there, right? And she's not really, oh, I'm sorry. I, she's not really a serious contender for the leadership. We, we know this, right? We know by looking at the percentages. Um, what, you know, when's the last time that you saw a woman at the, uh, the, the debate, right? When's the last time? When's the la- How many leaders in this country are females? So it's not really surprising that we don't take ourselves seriously. And I had um, interviewed a girlfriend of mine who is uh, the head of uh, women and inclusivity for the, the Chamber of Commerce here, the head of just chambers and commerce here in Ottawa. And the number one issue for women is childcare. 
Now, is that really going to be something in the election that really, really they deliver on? We'll see. And if they're not delivering, why are they not delivering? Because women are not making that an issue enough. Do you, do you see what I'm, they're not really yelling about it at the top of their lungs. Right. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of diverging off there. So sorry. Uh, I, I'm going to go back down to, so uh, I now am, I'm resonating. I hear it. I hear, oh, I've, I have imposter syndrome. What do I do about it? Well, the first thing that I think, just even we're talking about it, we're yeah. talking about it and we're saying, you know, Hmm. When you kind of look at these people and I, the thing that I notice about imposter syndrome, because every single like uh, businesswoman that you admire right now talks about a bit imposter syndrome. And of course, because I'm a mindset lady, I always think to myself, hmm, why is it that they still have have imposter syndrome? Because right. what ends up happening is, is the general message is just cope with it. And of course, that's my job is to not cope with it. My job is to solve it. Right. Yeah. And so, but basically the messaging around it is, is just cope with it. Just, just understand. And by the way, you do end up getting over it as time goes by to a certain degree. Yeah. So I think that the most important thing that I have always said is that awareness, understanding your beliefs, I bang on about beliefs for a really good reason. And the reason is, is that the more that you understand and recognize a belief, the less power it has. Mm. Right. Yeah. And you go, and most importantly, when I am sitting down and we're kind of forensically looking at um, my, the beliefs that someone has, my client, when you actually look at a belief and you go, mm-hmm, so do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? They're like, no, but it's about building that conscious part of their mind up. It's a bit like that has to be the dominant muscle. It's a bit like working out. Yeah. So in your practice, you're kind of getting people to confront these blocks and beliefs and starting to drill down as, are they really true? Yeah, because people are, by the time that people come and, you know, to be honest, my clients are pretty self-aware. And I think if you're a businesswoman, I think you're, or a businessman, because they were my first clients, you're called upon to do more self-development than um, I think in some ways, uh, women who are not. And the reason why, and I was listening to a fantastic woman yesterday who has built three eight figure businesses. And she, of course, when she was being interviewed by another uh, eight figure businesswoman, they talked all about mindset and they talked about imposter syndrome and they talked about the mistakes they'd made and they talked about risk and how you needed to take risk. And I think that everything within women from I think this is fundamental and something I work on, I'll be honest, is we have been taught because we are women that risk is scary and it makes sense, right? Like I have a 17 year old daughter and she's going to work, like do this co-op thing. And like, yeah, I was thinking, oh, well, what could happen to her? And we've all, you know, we've always been kind of communicated that women are in danger and we have been in physical danger, to be honest. So I think that in the old days when women didn't, we're just what, two generations out where women could have credit cards. I think it was in the 1970s or when did they get the permission oh, to like have? Yeah. 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 My grandfather co-signed for my mom's uh, car when she bought her first car in the fifties. So yeah. when you think about risk, it makes sense. Like I didn't, I, and uh, Wendy, you know this better than anybody in terms of access to getting uh, capital and any investment. I remember, you know, talking to women about trying to get investment. Don't appear pregnant because you will be SOS. 
You know, if you go in front of your looking for some investment and you're pregnant, I remember this one woman who had a fantastic business here in Ottawa. She was pregnant. She didn't get the investment. That's why this angel investing for women was started here in Ottawa in the tech industry. So there's a reason why women are, are fearful because we have had an experience and we have beliefs about it and in many ways to reinforced, right? And that's why things are starting to shift and women are starting to say, well, and this is say, for example, the investment here in Ottawa, it's women investing in women and saying, listen, that's the only way this is going to happen is for you to invest in each other. So it's a really interesting shift that we're starting to, to uh, get into right? In terms of our mindset, we're working hard these days. There's a lot, but in the interview, sorry, back to the interview with uh, these women, they kept talking about mindset and they kept talking about um, women taking risk and being more um, courageous. And they had taken big risk, both of them. Like they had Mm -hmm. mortgaged their house, which I know you're going to shudder, Wendy, but they had mortgaged some of their house Mm -hmm. to be able to, and, and it worked out for one and it didn't work out for the other because the 2008 or 2009 recession hit, but she had massive, massive, massive uh, lessons that she learned from all of the risks that she took and some that weren't so successful. Yeah, I I do. I have a, I have a core belief. You learn more from your mistakes sometimes than from your successes. So yeah, 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 for sure. Um, where are some good resources that people could be using? Like, obviously a coach like yourself, Megan, is one option, but if they're not ready to talk to somebody, what are some um, books, podcasts, things like that, that you would recommend for people to start even exploring the idea that they might have mindset blocks? Well, if you talk to any sort of anyone in the entrepreneurial world, uh, they truly will uh, recommend, it's called like the Bible, really. And I, I asked my clients to read it. And it's The Big Leap okay. by Gay Hendricks. Yeah. And so this is a great book for anybody who is interested in understanding their subconscious internal world and what internal blocks that they create that might stop them from growing in their business and in their life. I mean, it's all interconnected, right? And I mean, really what we're talking about is how your subconscious is is wired, how it was informed growing up and how it's affecting your conscious activities. Okay. So that was the big leap by Gay Hendricks. And he's got a couple others out. So I'm just uh, responding to Christina. Um, The other thing that I tend to, that has always helped me before the world of podcasts, although I love listening to pod, I'm a junkie. So um, I have been listening to um, Rachel Rogers. And there's another one. Oh, gosh, a guy does that I loved. I thought he was great the other day. I'll have to let you know later that I thought was fantastic. But how before they had podcasts, and before, you know, because I started in 2002, I always researched women, for me, women, and you could end men, obviously, whatever, um, who I thought were successful, who I admired. Mm-hmm. And this could be in real life, by the way, it doesn't have to be someone like Oprah, but what do they believe? Like I'd have oh, those conversations, okay. like what yeah. do you believe? And they would be more than happy to say, or even if you do research and you go, okay, I really love say Oprah. And what does Oprah believe? And if you listen to her, 
and I mean, of course, billions of people do listen to her. She'll tell you what she believes about money. Like, for example, I remember reading about Oprah talking about how does she, what is her mindset around having that much money? And it's really interesting to listen to her because you think to yourself, well, imagine going from being like a kind of middle-class person and she grew up rather poor to going into the world of being a billionaire and having that much influence. And how has she navigated that? Yeah. And many of the people who are her contemporaries, she talks to them and they will have conversations and they will also um, go into the, you know, their, the mindset area very often to talk about their, their belief system. So I personally love doing research and listening to people like it could, and it doesn't have to be a gazillionaire. It could be someone that you admire within your family. And what do they believe about this? Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so we've talked a little bit about money mindset. And, and recently I have started to explore a wealthy mindset. Yeah. What do you think is the difference? Like, I feel like it does, there, that it does hit two different areas. So tell me what you think about that title. Well, I'm always looking. So when I work with people, I'm always looking at their definition of words. So what do they believe about words? Because we often take for granted when we listen to words, and this is communication 101. So if you have a spouse or a honey bunny, this is helpful too. never assume that you understand what someone believes. Always ask questions. And that's what I have been trained to do. My, my training is to ask questions about what does that word wealth mean? Mm -hmm. And if you dig down on what does wealth mean, um, uh, you know, I recently was uh, uh, another person that I like is Rachel Rogers. Um, I just read her book and she, um, her sort of value, and this does, it's, this is a good value. Her, her end result for everything she does is wealth. And she grew up struggling in her childhood. Yeah. And everything at the end for her is wealth. Like if you were to draw a pyramid, what's at the top wealth. And what she talks about, which I thought sort of shifted some of my mindset was talking about um, there's not just one path to wealth. And she speaks to, to women of color, but she's talking about things that I have taken for granted in terms of wealth, which is generational that, you know, she's talking about people who, for example, have never owned a house. Well, I, we probably in my family have owned a house for generation after generation after generation. And I hadn't even thought about that as being really in many ways, that's wealthy when you think yeah. about it. So what does that word mean? And even if you look at the word, and this has always been the best word for me to, to look at when I looked at money mindset was rich. Mm. What does rich mean? Yeah. And wealthy and rich or abundant or whatever the word is that you need to, um, you know, Wendy, if you were talking to people like, you know, I'm doing a wealthy, this is the program that I'm doing. It would be really interesting if, even if you substituted it. So they were like, Oh, okay. Okay. Like, you know, like it, yeah. it, it just, that word wealthy might feel intimidating. Like, Oh my goodness, wealthy. I think, you know, I always laugh because I always think of the word that I learned was, well, they were, it, it was as if wealthy or rich were sort of day class A and they would, oh, my mom would always say, well, they're well to do. They're well to do, you know? And so we have all these, these interesting hangups and hangups, AKA beliefs yeah. about the word wealthy. So when you think about wealthy mindset, and you're listening to people and they're like, wealthy mindset, am I, a can I be a wealthy person? Is that possible? All those beliefs are going to come out. Yeah. Right. And so sure. 
they, it's a great idea also to just dig into the wealthy mindset. It might be what Rachel Rogers was referring to, which is generational wealth. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, just having might be a person who has passive income. It might be someone who has their mortgage paid off. I mean, what does mm. that subjectively mean to someone, right? I know when I was growing up, this is, I grew up in the country and if you had a paved driveway and a satellite uh, receiver, I really thought you were, well, you, <laughs> you had it all. <laughs> <laughs> See? Yeah. See? So it's all the All right. Yeah. Well, Megan, I'm going to open up the floor to some questions. So uh, if you have a question, um, unmute yourself and come forward, please. Okay, Christina, we'll go with you first. Come on in. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi, Megan. Hi. Um, yeah, it's not as much a question, Megan, as just sort of a thud realization that I that I just thought I would share because I my son was in the car listening to you I was driving him to school and I had the video off and we and we were just listening and and it was just at that part where you're talking about kids around the table and what and the ideas that they pick up and and I had just talked to him about something really kind of similar to what you had said and he was he said to me well you validated me for one so thank you because that doesn't happen very often in parenting <laughs> so you validated uh, what I was saying to him about needing his own opinion yeah. um yes that's my opinion I feel that shirt makes you look scuffy and yeah. I'm gonna let you wear that for the day and you need to have your own opinion on that at the end of the day and he was really upset by that because I think sometimes kids just want to be told what to do anyway um yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But the but the actual thud that I had was, and I, I can smell the food in the restaurant from the scene. I was sitting in a Chinese restaurant, and my with my big brother who who was a millionaire, uh, and, and, and in the oil industry, and I I was in education, and there was there was a a principal job opening up, and I was a vice principal, and I could not see myself in that role. I could not imagine not being a wingman because a vice principal is a wingman, right? And, and, and the man that I was the wingman for, I mean, I did everything for him. And I should, I should be careful there because he did, he did an awful lot too. But you know what I'm saying? I, I was very competent. And my brother, it was so easy for him to go, what? Like, why are you... I don't understand why you're not going for that job. And I spent the entire meal convincing him that I was not right for that job. Yeah. And the energy that I put into that conversation and, and tears and just trying to tell him why it was important that I not could go into that job. And that conversation is confusing to me. Yeah. <laughs> because this is what we do. And I was yeah. adamant that he did not get it. And he, he was yeah. just like, okay, uh, well, he, but, but, but yet he, he did because he was trying to say, do it. Him that didn't get my mindset and approach that, but there was also a part of them that only saw the possibilities in me for being a great leader. And so, gosh, I was really thinking of that conversation when you were talking and just knowing that that is just so true. And that I'll have to get in touch with you again for a few more sessions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And but you see, he's seeing the truth because he he he's in the present day mind, and you're stuck mm-hmm. in the old what I call the old mindset. And we get stuck in that, and that's why we have that's why women do exactly what you did. And and I call it the lawyer. I feel like I'm constantly in court with my clients, and they're making their case. And I was telling my lawyer friend, our lawyer friend yesterday about it, and they're making their case, this subconscious parts of their mind are making their case. And they're saying, your honor, this is rationalizing and defending why they need to stay in the position where they are. Right. And we do that in all aspects of our life. But in terms of leadership, they're going to darn well make their case why they can't do something. And the reason why if you kind of get through all the muck and that's my job, I get through all the muck often at the bottom is um, it's all around staying safe. It's all around safety. Like if you were to go and talk to my daughter, Sarah, who's 17 now in grade seven, and she was getting uh, marks taken off for not putting up her hand during class. And she's not a, she's not an introvert. Let's just put it that way. And I was like, why is this child not putting her hand up? And she was like, because the boys are going to make fun of me. So even like, if you think back to those formative years where we create beliefs around ourselves and the culture, it, it's just also like brain development too, but you're often making decisions around that grade five, grade six, grade seven. And girls often are very fearful of not fitting in and they don't develop those skills. And we're not, we don't have a, we don't have a culture that also, let's be honest. I mean, you're, you're in, in education in many ways, there is often not a culture. We still have the old culture and we're still mm-hmm. operating in an old fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And even in terms of Sarah's skill set, she's going to the guidance counselor and she's telling her, well, why don't you be a teacher? And, you know, I, I would say most of my friends are teachers, but it's really interesting how they're taking the skills that she has. And it's not, they're not saying, well, and I'm saying business, like I'm trying to gear it toward business um, because I think a lot of jobs are going to be obsolete anyway. So, I mean, this is just like a practicality thing, but I think um, anyway, that's, that's sort of my, my thoughts on why people react the way women react the way they do in terms that's of leadership. Amazing. Thank yeah. you, Christina. That brought out some really good points there, even if it wasn't a question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Melanie, you're up. Uh, hi. Uh- Megan and like Christine, I was like, "Wow, are you in my head, like <laughs> my life." Um, but it, it it's actually very validating again because it's a very common as you know. You're and I'd heard a lot of these statistics. Um, I'm a, a female tech founder here in Halifax, um, and I stopped myself from saying the non-technical co-founder. And this is kind of a prelude to my question. Like how important do you, and, and in your coaching, do you feel it is? And I've had coaching from people at the Center for Women in Business who pick up on like, I described the, my, my business as we have a little business. Yeah. How important is language, both in how we reinforce these beliefs and how we change them? Well, um, just think about it, right? Like, just think about my little business or, you know, downplaying. It's like saying, I'm not powerful. Because in many ways, we don't feel powerful, right? No, like, and I didn't. No. But it's like that. I'm such an open book. And we can't always be that way. You can't always show you, especially in business, especially as a woman. It took me a while to kind of to get to that place. And now I pick it up all the time. And I hear, and I, this is maybe, you know, four years in now. 
um, since like wireframe sketches <laughs> yeah. into the business. Um, and I still catch myself doing it. Uh, for example, there was a, somebody I had a, a love mentorship opportunity. So NSBI, uh, an organization here to help um, businesses with exporting outside of Nova Scotia. I set up this partnership program and I'm like, can I talk to everybody that you suggested? Because I, I feel as though I'm, I love the insights, but I wonder what, if there, on another level, there's another bit of me that just doesn't feel confident enough. Like I still feel like I need all that input. Do you deal with that? A, and um, a second part uh, was the whole idea of, as a female tech founder, if you're going in, putting out, you know, pitching your idea, going for funding, as you, as you talked about, we get asked different questions. Yeah. And how do you shift that conversation in a way that, um, say, men typically do when they are asked those questions? Like, how do you guide that? Well, there's, I mean, we know this also from research. We know bias. We know that, that if you're going to a VC and you're going to get funding from a VC, um, the percentages that likely that you will receive the investment are low. Yeah. So this is one of the good, good news stories, though. There's a lot of uh, female leaders who understand this. This is starting to shift. You know, women of color, even less so, um, will receive that. But I also think it's um, something that we internally, like when you understand going into something, this is, I think this is really important. If you were going into a meeting and you knew that most people weren't open to what you were going to say, and you knew that going in, like if I know I'm working with a client who is going to be a tough nut, I'm going to go in and I'm going to strategize, right? Going into that meeting. But I think that in order, this is like foundational in order for you to feel like you deserve things. And I think a lot of times we also like, it goes back to the deserving part. Do I deserve the funding or do I deserve the, um, the time? How many times have you heard yourself apologize? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to take up your time. Well, why? Why are we always apologizing? And I, 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 had, uh, I wrote a thing on LinkedIn about this. It was one of my biggest posts, like popular posts about me apologizing because I was missing shots when I first started tennis. And I haven't played tennis in like 30 years. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And they're like, can you shut up with the sorry? You know, stop with the sorry. I'm like, well, I'm Canadian. So it's going to be a double whammy. But I think what you need to really understand is that you need to build your foundation. And your foundation is, when I talk about foundation from a belief point of view, when I think about what does that mean foundation from my perspective, is that I always talk to my clients about building a foundation, which means building your belief system to support yourself in these interactions. So if I am going into something and I know, for example, that they are biased against me or, you know, especially if you're safe, we use the example of walking in pregnant, right? Then what do I need in my foundation to speak to these people? So imagine, this is where the imagination is the most important thing. Because in order for me to have my clients change their mindset, they have to be able to imagine a different possibility. So if you imagine yourself walking into the room, and this is like a very easy step, I think, for many people, you start to imagine yourself speaking to them. What do you need to have as your foundation in order to have a good meeting? What do you need to feel? What do you need to believe? What do I need to believe in order to feel um, it's totally cool to, to email those people. What do I need to believe within myself? And I'm always, this is my goal when I'm working with people is to create a foundation where it's an automatic response for them to feel confident. It's an automatic, like my client said to me the other day, 
I feel like there's limited, limitless possibilities for me in my business now because she's accessed all the creativity in her mind too. Once you have confidence, once you give yourself permission to take risks, you're going to be more creative. Well, how do I get that guy on the line? Or how do I, who do I need to talk to? And you feel confident networking. Like I'll talk to Wendy. Hey, Wendy, do you want to have me on your show? Guess what? You know, like people, why not? All they can do is say no. <laughs> so, right. Sorry. Go ahead, Wendy. No, I'm just, wow. Thank you. No, sorry. That's Perfect. I was going to ask one uh, question too, just uh, before we go, what are your thoughts on faking it till you make it? Like, is that a real thing? Does it work? I think it works to a certain degree for sure. I mean, you've got to start somewhere, right? So once again, faking it means, I mean, it's kind of the opposite of why I got into what I do, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Like one of the reasons why I do what I do is because um, someone said to me, why don't you just stop coping with how you feel and solve it? And I was like, mm, elementary, my dear Watson, you know, like really, but faking it until, you know, often um, I think a lot of people don't even know that they need to work on this stuff. So I think faking it makes sense, mm. but I think faking it takes a lot of time. Like if you think about it, I'm always managing how I feel before I go into that meeting. Well, isn't that a lot of time? And isn't that a lot of energy? And isn't that a lot of motion? So one of my clients before she was working with it, before she went in to do a networking event, because she's very introverted, she was like in the bathroom, like doing mantras. Well, if that works to get you through the, the meeting, to get through the networking meeting, then yes, do it. That works. I'm all for whatever works. Um, I think faking it is kind of that, but I think it's the beginning. It's becoming conscious. Like I'm faking it. So your imagination goes, well, what do I need to, in order to fake it, what do I need to appear like? So at least you're starting the ball rolling, if that makes sense. Okay. You're setting up what the end destination is. Exactly. You're, you're, you're training your mind. If, if you want to put it, if you think about why do we, and I'll, I'll end on this. When you think about why do people get stuck feeling the way they do, right? Mm. It's because you, from childhood, you've trained your mind. Those neural pathways are, it's like they're going this way and they continue to go this way. When I'm working with people, they, they are changing. We're changing our neural pathways all the time. If you yeah. think about it, we're retraining our mind, re-engineering our mind all the time. So in some ways, faking it until you make it, in some ways is doing that, if you think about it. You're starting to build the track, the path. Right, exactly. Well, I have to say, Megan, this has been a fascinating uh, interview. This time has just fallen, uh, flown by. So thank you for your time. Uh, and thank you for the real bottom line. Our mind is our, can be our friend or our enemy. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.